Hello and welcome to episode five of the Climate Change and Health podcast from University College London. I'm your host, Harry Kennard, and today's episode is once again dominated by recent events in Scotland's biggest and arguably best city, Glasgow. All the very best to Aberdeen. After two weeks of intense activity, COP26 concluded one day over schedule with an agreement, the Glasgow Climate Pact. The 11-page document that resulted from the conference has been both welcomed and derided. It calls for efforts towards the phase-down of unabated coal power and phase-out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Proponents of this wording note that this is the first time fossil fuels have been explicitly mentioned in a UN climate agreement, whereas critics argue that phasing down of coal is simply too slow to avoid disastrous climate change. The deal successfully completed the Paris Agreement prior to Glasgow. Article 6, which covers the rules of how carbon markets function, was undecided. And there's much more besides that. So I caught up with three of UCL's leading climate change academics from the Institute of Sustainable Resources, the ISR, who attended the conference to get their impressions of what happened. Lilia Kuto is a PhD candidate at ISR. She serves as a chapter scientist and research assistant for the IPCC AR6 mitigation report. The main research goal of her PhD is to assess the socioeconomic impacts of investing in renewable electricity sources in Brazil. I'm also joined by Jim Watson, who's Professor of Energy Policy and Director of the ISR, and Research Director of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office's Climate Compatible Growth Program. And finally, Michael Grubb, who is Professor of Energy and Climate Change and Research Director at ISR. He's worked as a Senior Advisor to the UK's Energy Regulator, Ofgem, and in 2018 was appointed Convening Lead Author for Chapter 1 of the IPCC's 6th Assessment Mitigation Report. This week's episode marks the end of the Bartlett School's pre-COP outreach program. Please do have a look at all the resources at ucl.ac.uk forward slash Bartlett forward slash together hyphen climate hyphen action. There really is something for everyone who's interested in sorting out climate change. Next episode, I'll return to the more in-depth discussions we've had of the relationship between climate change and health explicitly that we were having before COP captured the world's attention, but we decided it was too important not to cover. So here's my discussion with Lilia, Jim and Michael on COP26. So I'm very happy to welcome uh, Lilia Kuto, Jim Watson and Michael Grubb to the podcast. They are UCL colleagues who have spent the last week or two at COP26, and they've agreed to share their impressions of the conference with us. So this should be very interesting. I'll ask each of them to give me a, a brief background about how they got interested in climate change and energy and the environment, and then we'll uh, crack on with impressions of, of COP26 and some reflections on what the conference achieved or didn't achieve. So Lilia, I'll, I'll start with you. How did you get interested in the environment? Uh, that's a nice question. Actually, I, I have always known that I wanted to work uh, with environmental issues. So when I decided to do like my undergrad, first I joined environmental engineering, but then I realized that I was more of an economist, so I changed to economics. But I already knew that I wanted to work with like the economics of climate change. So yeah, it was something I always knew. 
Excellent. Thanks very much, Leo. That's uh, that's great. Okay, moving on to you, Jim. Uh, what about your background? Yeah, I'm, I'm, so mine's similar to Lilia's, actually, an engineer turned economics and policy person. Um, I guess I'd trace it back to the late 1980s, early 1990s, first spending a few years in a car company, which um, really didn't show any signs of doing anything for the environment. So I suppose it was partly a reaction to that. Um, and second, having the opportunity to build a small wind turbine, the, the first and last time I've ever done that in the uh, early 90s. It was very small, I would add. Um, but I guess from there, the, the lesson I took is, A, you know, I wanted to work on sustainability and the environment, and B, I wasn't really cut out for a career in making and designing things. It was more about what government does and what society does about these problems. And I guess that's led to me uh, being where I am. Excellent. Thanks very much, Jim. Last but not least, we have Michael. Yes, I, well, like Jim, I fear I date back to the 1980s, um, which I started the decade with a broad interest across natural sciences uh, at university. And uh, when I thought about what I wanted to do, I really wasn't sure, but I found energy and environment issues fascinating and was lucky enough to get a PhD place uh, in that kind of area that drew me into electricity systems and how they might operate with renewable energy. And then I moved from there into much broader environmental uh, issues. Um, and I've just found it eternally fascinating uh, as well as hopefully important. Uh, indeed so. Yeah, we all, we all hope that what we're doing is important. Well, let's start with you, Lilia, and then um, uh, we can move to Jim and Michael in, in turn then. So what were your impressions of, of how what it's like to attend a COP conference. How did this one differ from previous ones you've been to? Was it made interesting by it being uh, in Glasgow? Yeah, it's always overwhelming. There's always this huge fear of missing out because everything's happening at the same time. Lots of commitments being launched at the same time and everybody expects you to know everything about what's happening there because you're there, right? Uh, everybody who's not there expects you to be able to explain everything that's happening there, while things are happening. So it's really overwhelming. And fear of missing out is, is, it really defines the sensation of being in a cult to me. So this one was no different. Um, there were all in the first week while we were there, there were loads of new commitments um, to reduce deforestation, methane emissions, uh, the finance alliance, so everything being launched at the COP, because this is also something that always happens. Like every new initiative wants to, like they, they want to launch it at the COP, right? Not a, a little before or like just after, they want to do it at the COP. So everybody keeps the best they have during the year to launch at the COP. And it wasn't different this time. I think what was really different this time was uh, about COVID, really. Like the fact that there was no COP last year, so we didn't have a COP for two years. Uh, the COP that was supposed to happen last year and, and of course just happened is a very important one in terms of like the Paris Agreement rule book and everything and the updated NDC. So it's a very important COP that was held. Um, so there was a lot of tension and a lot of expectations and excitement. At the same time that events were hybrid for the very first time, like normally the, the events 
uh, wouldn't be so focused on uh, the broadcasting. They they would more they would be more focused on people who were actually there. And this was very different, like from my previous experiences. Our which like, which uh, were the previous cops that you went to? COP21 in Paris and 22 in Marrakech. Interesting. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Lilia. That's uh, that's an excellent sort of uh, impression. The uh, sense of overwhelmness is something that doesn't necessarily come across to people who aren't uh, yeah. there. Jim, um, your impressions, is it similar? It was very different. I mean, my last, it's been 10 years since I was last at a COP. So I went to the COPs either side of Copenhagen, but not Copenhagen itself, because that was such an organisational disaster. I didn't leave home. Um, so I, never mind not getting into the conference centre like some people. I, I just yeah. didn't leave home. Um, and so it felt different, of course, because 10 years have passed. The context is very different. I mean, it's not just COVID that uh, Lily mentioned, but, you know, just the the progress we've made with renewable technologies and the costs of those coming down and so on. So a lot of those things added to a, a very different sense. And of course, Paris had been done in between as the deal at COP21. So you did feel that the profile of COP this time, at COP26, was way higher than certainly the other ones I'd been to. Um, yes, it was a circus. It's always a circus. And I spent a lot of my time in the third ring of the circus, which is the, the ring outside the COP itself entirely. You know, So there's a set of side events going on inside the main zone, which are not where the negotiations are. So that's the issue of keeping up. But then there's another ring of stuff going on even outside the main zone. And so I was involved in side events there. Um, and I suppose the, the sense when I was there, the overwhelming sense for me was just swinging between optimism and pessimism, depending on which report had just come out or who I'd just spoken to. You know, so there was a lot of hope riding on this cop, of course. Uh, and we'll talk about the outcome in a minute. But um, yeah. You know, both things were happening simultaneously, both optimism and pessimism quite often, uh, you know, and really trying to work out how I felt. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Michael, from from you, what's your history of uh, cop attendance and impressions of this last one? Well, I've got a fairly extensive history of cop attendance, uh, which I think actually, yeah, definitely includes right back to COP1, can you imagine, 1995, uh, and the adoption of UNFCC before it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the whole thing has grown enormously, um, in particularly in terms of non-governmental involvement attending. It's clear now that COPs are basically two very different events. There's global negotiations uh, and there's huge civil society interest. You could argue that there's several variants, several meetings going on at once, actually, because you have the sort of the internal discussions where lots of governments have their own pavilions to to bring forward their research. And there's the green zone, uh, which is a more general, wider access. And, and I think Glasgow, uh, to be honest, will partly be remembered for a, a COP where you could argue the event were maybe more important than the negotiated outcomes. Um, at least in some senses, um, because you saw the British presidency using much more consciously and deliberately the, the event to convene political pressure and to introduce a lot of coalition statements. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the first week was a kind of pledge fest of, of you know, groups of countries saying we, we will do this and that. Um, and then the second week got noticeably mm, more tricky 
more difficult and more serious because it was actually about the UN negotiations and what countries would actually sign up to in terms of at least a formal COP statement, which is, of course, not itself a legally binding document. That's, that happens quite rarely in terms of you know, high-level issues. There were important issues resolved in the negotiations, for example, around what was called Article 6. But, you know, most of the headlines really were in the first week um, on the non-negotiating presentations uh, and statements and coalition announcements, uh, followed by a certain amount of head-scratching about how much are, and real are these and what may the negotiations themselves deliver. In that sense, I think it was a rather different dynamic from, from several other uh, COPs, but a sort of a natural evolution of the process, you might say. Right, and we sort of look on to uh, Egypt next year, right? That's the... Uh where the sort of cycle continues. Um, okay, well, going back to you, uh, Lily, I think it's probably nice to, uh, or a good point to sort of reflect on some of the outcomes of the uh, negotiations. I mean, there's a lot of technical stuff we could get into, but um, that may not be of interest to the listeners. Uh, do you have any uh, specific takeaways from what um, has resulted that you think are particularly important? Yeah, sure, sure. I know that there is some disappointment, some disappointment, like some bitter taste uh, regarding like the the language phase out that became phase down uh, of coal. But I think that the fact that we now have a rule book for the Paris Agreement is super important. It is like one of the main outcomes that we could expect from this COP, and we have it. And the fact that fossil fuels were mentioned for the first time in a COP decision. So, and also the, the Article 6 about international carbon markets. Um, we now have rules for that too. So we have very important outcomes, like what, what we would expect from this COP. We got, we got some of those. So although the, the NDCs, the National Determined Contributions, they are still not consistent with the temperature goals and some of the things that we would expect we don't have yet. Uh, I would say that we have like, loads of positive outcomes from this call. Do you, um, it, th there's a lot sort of riding on uh, whether the outcome is still compatible with uh, 1.5 degrees of warming. Uh, do you have a, an impression about um, some of those uh, observations in the sense that there was this IEA analysis that said uh, we're currently looking at something like 1.8. Um... Yeah, yeah, that that is the debate, like where we're heading in terms of uh, temperature according to the commitments we have at the moment. But one very important thing that I didn't mention is the ratchet mechanism, the, the fact that uh, all those countries will need to present new targets they are more ambitious next week, next year already. So, like the fact that they have to come up with more ambitious targets already in 2022. Well, at least I hope it will uh, lead us to a better pathway in terms of temperature readiness, etc. Yeah, thanks. That's great, uh, Jim. Yeah. So I have mixed a mixed feeling i guess about the the outcome overall um 
But I do think in terms of an international negotiation, there are, you know, some pretty positive things in the in the pact that was agreed in the end. Um, obviously, if you compare it to what the science says we should be doing, that's why lots of people are disappointed. And they're especially disappointed if they're in a less developed country dealing with the impacts of climate change or a small island state facing sea level rise. So I can really understand the disappointment too. But, you know, Lily has already pointed to a few of the things I'd pick out, some of which I never really expected to survive in the final text, you know. So this idea of revisiting pledges next year rather than in five years' time, I think is perhaps the most important thing for me because it means that these extra deals that Michael was talking about, you know, that were announced in the first year, these sort of have to mean something now in order for countries to come back and show more ambition in you know, next year rather than in five years' time. Uh, the mention of coal, I mean, it got watered down and watered down through the second week. That was intensely frustrating. I don't think India needed that final change in language at all. They had enough weasel words in there already, but somehow they felt they needed to push push their case on that. And I could see why Alex Sharma got so emotional and upset about it. Because, uh, But it's still in there, yeah. as he said in the press conference afterwards. He never expected that mention of coal and fossil fuel subsidies to survive in the text. I think the other couple of things that struck me in the text, one is that it was fairly blunt in its assessment of where we are. So there was a blunt statement of concern about the rise in, t- in, in emissions we are expecting unless governments do more between now and 2030. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty blunt on the failure on finance. You know, there was a pretty stark language in there. And maybe that reflects more of a preparedness to um, face up to the reality. And then there's a number of other things in there. So it's clearly not enough. It sort of keeps 1.5 alive on life support, as somebody else said, but it's there, it's still alive. But really, you know, the next year or two is really which, you know, we'll tell whether, you know, that's still going to remain the case. There's not much time to keep it that way. And uh, specifically on this Article 6, the wording of that, um, could you sort of enlighten listeners as to why that's important and what it means and whether we'll know whether it works? Yes, I mean, in a general level, I can. I mean, I'm sure Michael can in a more specific level, but I think it does matter because this is about how countries trade, you know, carbon credits and can they help each other out to help meet targets. And there was just a lot of scope and especially fears earlier on in the COP that there'd be too many get out of jail free cards built in that people could claim things were helping to reduce emissions when actually in reality they wouldn't. So the idea of avoiding chopping down forest, which probably they weren't going to do anyway, or saying, well, we'll count a new renewable energy project as a, as a credit, but actually they were going to invest in it anyway. So that's always the difficulty with these sorts of things. Um, but having those rules completed, as Lilia said, the article, you know, the full Paris rule, but with Article 6 settled, I think is really important. It's not perfect, but it's perhaps, again, better than meant some people had feared. Uh, Lilia, you were going to jump in with something. Yeah, it's just that there is also a rule now to avoid double counting because one thing that everybody was quite worried about was that there would be double counting in terms of both the country which is producing the credit and the country who is buying the credit, both of them would be able to use those credits against their NDCs. And this is something that the the new rules um, have managed to rule out. Um, just, just one word on the Article Six, uh, which is that I, I caught briefly um, the tail end of a webinar earlier today, 
about Article 6 by one of the stalwarts, long-standing people of the field, uh, Alex Mikhailova. His assessment was really quite positive. There was worry it could be a load of loopholes. Uh, there were worries that the, the Brazilian delegation in particular would be very difficult, uh, as it was in Madrid in the previous COP. But actually, he was really quite upbeat about the outcome in, in most respects. Um, obviously, it's a really complicated area, but he said at least now those involved in that field can get on with the job of trying to develop these mechanisms and projects in practice. And there is sufficient you know, protection against the kind of problems Jim mentioned that they feel that it is pretty robust. Uh, and that's actually a not, not a trivial achievement, in, in my view. Uh, against the wider, wider backdrop, um, yes, the outcome. It was very interesting watching. Uh, and I have to say, one lesson is, if you want to know what's going on in a COP, you really don't have to go there. In some ways, it's easier if you're not there. Because if you're not there, you're sitting at your screen and you're watching the plenary or whatever and the documents. And if you are there, you're running around the halls trying to find out what's going on or trying to find somebody that you're meant to meet up with. And with 200 countries, thousands and thousands of people, it's, it's quite a nightmare. Um, so I was already home and watched the final plenary. And I thought actually what happened was sad, but for slightly different reasons. Um, I think the changes in this famous paragraph about coal, etc., uh, the additions that got introduced at the 11th hour um, upset quite a lot of people in different ways and led to a slightly bad taste in the mouth, but they're not really very material to the outcome of the COP and, and its statement, in my view. Um, as Jim noted, it, it, it's, it is significant that there was an explicit reference to a particular fuel and the need to phase down or phase out. I mean, you know, phasing down is on the way. You've got to do that, you know. Um, what I thought was sad also is, on the whole, I think that Alex Sharma and the, the British government, certainly the civil service, have done a good job. I mean, in the circumstances, it was pretty well organized. Um, they've been working really hard in the, in the build-up to it, etc. I thought it was striking that Alok Sharma didn't appear to have that much support right around him. Um, I don't know where some of the senior cabinet, of, cabinet ministers have been during this whole process. We saw almost nothing from Dominic Raab or since Liz Trust in the way that Laurence Fabier was heading up the French effort as the head of the, of the Foreign Service. And I think at the end that showed, I think Alok Sharma was completely exhausted, but he made a terrible misjudgment in the final plenary, because watching it, I could see that China and India were saying, we cannot accept this text. And I and also reading exactly what they said, they had been saying that all along and they were getting really frustrated. And the South Africans said, you know, you have to show that we are not being heard. And then what does he do? He, he breaks briefly and comes back and says, well, we're going to keep the same text. Now, you cannot claim to try and ram through a global text over the 
stated objections of India, China and South Africa. Yeah, that's not the way the world. It may reflect a sort of psychology that if we stitch things up with the Americans, you know, British American access can drive things through. Well, they can't. And I think, to be honest, whilst, you know, it's great to blame India and everything and, you know, I'm disappointed. I just think it was a really unfortunate oversight and misunderstanding. But I don't know what he was thinking of trying to bring the same text back to the plenary when all three countries, you know, representing almost half of the world's population, had said they were never going to accept it. Um, and this is diplomacy. And the tragedy is, if you actually looked at this text from beginning in a knowledge of where countries were coming from, you say, you know, this is really not bad. This really takes us forward quite significantly. Instead of which the mood music was, oh, it was all a bit of a disaster. And, and it was procedurally a real mess at, at, at the end. And, and Sharma lost a lot of face. Um, but I do think he was, he was just exhausted and didn't quite have that diplomatic experience to realise that what those countries say is absolutely vital. And if you don't take it seriously, you are going to end up in a mess. Um, just a couple of other things on um, on the outcome of NDCs. People are still trying to unpick the numbers. I've got mixed feelings about this comeback every year and try and do better. Um, because, you know, these are we are talking about changing big, complicated systems. They don't change overnight one year's data is not really going to fundamentally change what a country thinks it can deliver. There is a risk of pressuring countries into more ambition than they really meant or know how to deliver or are able to deliver domestically. So whilst obviously the thing that people focus on is ambition, actually increasingly the academic community is concerned with the policy and implementation gap. You may have said you're going to do this, but we see no evidence that you're actually doing it on the ground. You know, that's even true in the UK. What do you think it looks like in some of these other countries? Right. Heat pumps are an excellent example of that, right? Is, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there's some pretty careful thinking required about the risk is you have an annual fest and you cannot conceivably expect countries to increase their commitment every year. So what you're saying is you're setting yourself up for a situation in which most countries come back and say, no, no change from last year. And we thought this was five year cycles anyway, which give us time to really review. So right. to me, it was a face saving message. It was one that was almost inevitable, given the mantra of keep 1.5 alive. Um, but I see Jim wants to add something into this conversation. So Maybe I'll disagree with you. That would be exciting. Yeah, I, I do slightly disagree. That's why I wanted to say something. See, I... I think I first first I've seen firsthand that countries can change things quite in quite short timescales. So the bit of the COP preparation I was involved in through the research program uh, that I helped run for the FCDO, we're having a lot of dialogues over this year with a number of countries, middle income, low income countries, particularly focused on phasing out coal, but on other areas. And one or two of those countries basically moved 180 degrees in six months. Um, on on things, uh, so Vietnam moved. Um, I think Morocco did significantly too, and certainly opened up conversations, not necessarily 180 degrees, but with others where you could see shift. So that's one reason why I, I think that annual review 
in some cases, countries will just simply refuse to do an update and it doesn't require them mm. to do so. But in others, I think it opens the window for them to do it. But the second reason I think the, the one year review is, is right is that the, uh, something Nigel Topping, who's the COP26 champion for non-governmental parties, uh, to put it shortly, uh, was responsible for. And he said, basically, the real economy, as he put it, is moving much quicker than the five-year cycles of a COP process. You know, so so companies are announcing targets and moving, technologies are moving quicker, markets are moving quicker. And my fear of sticking to five-year cycles was that basically you've got this blundering process and it's not really able to respond to what has been very rapid developments in the real world. Uh, now, maybe a year is too short, but I do think the five years is way too long, especially given where we are. Uh, yeah, no, I do agree. Five years is is, is rather long. Uh, almost feels like a bilateral process where maybe in the interim years, you actually try and assess what have countries done that would move them towards their NDCs or beyond it. Right. Some kind of iterative cycle, if you like, between ambition and implementation. But I, I'm not sure the UNFCCC is able to deliver that. That, yeah, that may be challenging. Uh, Lilia, do, do you have anything, uh, any thoughts on that particular, on the ratcheting mechanism in, in particular? Yeah, I do agree with Michael. I think it, I think it's very important that we have some kind of, um, I don't know if it's toxic, but like trying to assess what they are really delivering and not only the, the targets, how the targets are being met and how much. Right. Yeah. But, um, so I, th I think one perhaps final question, because we, we're already doing pretty well in terms of content, um, is just a reflection on the civil society response. Uh, I'm in particular thinking of uh, Greta's uh, response to the whole conference of being just another case of blah, blah, blah. Um, as sort of uh, technical experts, I think we can probably uh, uh, refute that on some level. Uh, though I do have some sympathy in the sense that if you just look at the uh, CO2 levels in the atmosphere over the last uh, 30 years that COPs have been happening, uh, they've just gone up and up and up. So do you have any reflections on on how at least we can convince wider society that, that something positive has happened to you? Yes, I, I think, I mean, we've I, I've never forgotten, um, I work for the Carbon Trust headed by a, a sort of experienced businessman. And his reaction on this was, well, it may look pathetic from the outside, but I can tell you reaching a deal between two companies is hard enough. How anybody gets 198 countries to agree anything is an absolute miracle, as far as he was concerned. Right. Um, now, just a word, though, on this sort of mantra about, oh, the whole thing's useless, we're not getting anywhere. It's kind of easy to say, and as you said, you look at the numbers and you think, yeah, it does feel like that. Um, just a few remarks. One is that there's, a, I think, a growing debate about half glass half full or half empty. In other words, yeah, it's clearly half empty from the global trends. But actually, you look at the huge progress in renewables. Actually, over 20 countries have sustained emission reductions for well over a decade. Um, there's quite a few bright spots of things that could grow and you might grow, expect to grow almost exponentially. The other thing is that just a few weeks ago, we um, published on the ISR website a link to a, a review that we've done uh, on the impact of policies 
in other words, attribution of observed changes to government policies. And the evidence there was not only have they been important in, say, technology and the growth of renewables, but even on global emissions, you can reasonably conclude that several billion tons of CO2 a year, uh, we're several billion tons a year lower than we would have been without government policies. And a lot of those government policies are actually traceable back to the imp impacts of the international process, the Kyoto Protocol, some of the politics then around Paris. Um, and I, I just think that it's so easy to criticise, but remember, we are trying to change century, you know, whole civilizations that have been built on two centuries of fossil fuel development. Anybody who thinks that's going to be easy or happen overnight does not understand the problem. Yeah, so I, I do agree with Michael and Lilia on this, but I do think that Greta and, you know, the, the people who are frustrated in civil society also have a point. And I would connect the two things together because, you know, we've already talked about the fact that, of course, countries have made pledges, but the real challenge is implementing them and showing you can meet those pledges and reduce your emissions and do all the changes in your economy, which are hard, as Michael said, to make it happen. Now, without that civil society pressure on the outside, whether it is of a COP centre or civil society within individual countries, politicians aren't going to go as far and as fast as required. So, you know, there is a connection between the civil society kind of view of this and what governments will actually do. But I, but I've, I fundamentally agree that, you know, to dismiss this deal as kind of useless is, is really not a very good characterization of the truth. It's not enough, but it's... Um, we are making some progress, but that pressure has to continue if the implementation is going to follow as quickly as it needs to. You've been listening to the Climate Change and Health Podcast. I'm Harry Kennard. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter, Please do contact me, especially if you work on the relationship between climate change and health. I would love to have you on the podcast. I have the dubious honor of being in charge of this thing, so I can decide who joins me. Quite exciting. A thanks to Lilia Kuto, Jim Watson, and Michael Grubb for joining me today, and also Kevin McLeod, who wrote the music which appears in this podcast. I found it on freepd.com. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>